0: With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the privacy Professor. We are here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello
1: and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 40th episode of my show, I use my show to help raise awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues. And I also try to provide listeners worldwide with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and also to better protect their privacy. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Play, Overcast, TuneIn, CastBox, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. And please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel site so you will be notified just as soon as each new show is available. I sincerely appreciate all of you who tune in, and it's so exciting to see all of you tuning in from countries and cities all over the world, and you know, I noticed a huge increase in listeners from different areas throughout China in the past month, so thank you for, so much for tuning in. I really appreciate it, and of course, I appreciate everyone uh, who's tuning in. Now, if you're interested in being a sponsor or advertiser for my radio show, please also get in touch. And if you need help with information security or privacy, just let me know. And thanks also for all your feedback and questions you're sending me. I really do love getting all your messages, so please keep sending them. My November Privacy Professor Tips message was published on October 30th. Did you get yours? Well, if not, please sign up for them. I've always made them available for free. And you can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. And please send me an email letting me know Who is your privacy hero? This can be in your work or in your personal life. I'm recognizing privacy heroes in my monthly tips messages throughout 2018. Now, this show is initially airing on November 6th, which is Election Day in the United States. Now, voter fraud, which generally is when someone claims to be someone else in order to vote, in the U.S. has been shown by multiple objective research to be almost non-existent, despite the fear-mongering claims that persist. However, large numbers of objective research has shown growing problems with the data security flaws and vulnerabilities in a wide range of voting machines, some of which are over 10, 15, and even over 20 years old. Now, for my data security tip this week, I want to encourage those of you voting today and everyone who votes at any time anywhere in the world to please notice when you are using voting machines to check and make sure that your vote is tabulated correctly. For example, it was recently reported that Texas voting machines have had a known problem for a decade with their security flaws. What was happening is that Texas voters were experiencing issues with voting machines and they were told by the Texas Secretary of State and also their election officials that they, the voters, were the problem, not the machines, because, quote, voters are inadvertently touching the machines in ways that they shouldn't, end quote. And this caused the voting machines to alter or delete their vote. Well, you know what? This is not a voter problem. These machines were not engineered securely if a mere misguided touch causes their vote to change. These machines need to be at the very least fixed, but more likely replaced. If they're changing votes under such ordinary circumstances, now voters in 41 states are using election equipment today that are more than a decade old, according to analysis by the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University Law School. Now, as some of my past guests in my series of voting and election security shows indicated, some of the old voting machines and even some of the discovered defective newer voting machines have design flaws and security problems that result in altering votes or causing other types of issues. So here is my tip for you today. When you go to vote, you need to really watch closely when you use a voting machine and when choosing who you want to vote for. Now, look closely before submitting your electronic ballot to ensure that your choice is reflected correctly on your screen. And if it's not, then get an election official at the polling location to help you. They should move you to a different machine that is not flawed and ideally shut down that machine that's not working correctly. For more information about voting and election security, please check out my series of five shows that I've done on this topic so far. And those shows have come out on October 23rd, October 2nd, um, September 11th. July 24th and June 26th of this year. So you can see those shows at my Voice America Business Channel site, and they are listed on the right side of the screen. Now, my longtime listeners know that I taught 7th through 12th grade math and computing when I was very young, starting when I was 21 years old. And I taught for two years between getting my bachelor's and master's degree. And I was also an adjunct professor for the Norwich University Master of Science in Information Security and Assurance for nine years. And I still teach classes in a variety of venues. But long before this, when I was a little girl, as far back as I can remember, my father was first a math teacher, and then he became superintendent of schools for most of the time I was in school for a few decades for school districts in north central Missouri. Now, I basically grew up within the school system as a result of having my dad at school with me every day. I rode with my father to school, leaving our house at around 630 in the morning helped him with various things as needed before the first period bell rang, and then I usually rode home with him early in the evenings after he finished work at the school for the day. So I've been deeply immersed in the education environment in some way, basically all my life, and the environment certainly has some significant risks. I've been long concerned about the privacy risk. Now, even before I officially made privacy one of my career specialty areas, you know, schools are in comparatively open environments. You have staff, you have students, you have teachers, you have parents, guests, vendors, and salespeople along with folks from other schools who are often coming over for events or competitions. And they're all going through the facilities generally, sometimes every day. Now, in recent years, there have been more types of technologies also being used by teachers and students within the school systems and environments, and also as part of the education process and as part of classes and activities. And so these new technologies also bring with them data security and privacy risks. And they have resulted in a growing number of privacy breaches, as well as concerns about the privacy of the students and of the teachers. And more Organizations want to get their hands on that personal data of the students and the teachers and all the associated activity data that's created by them. And they, they want to for a wide variety of reasons, some very legitimate and some beneficial, but some, you know, very questionable and, and not so good. So this is a very large, complex issue, one that I'm going to be doing a series of shows on. And I'm starting with today's show being the inaugural show for this series on privacy in education. And I'm so delighted and excited to have a couple of longtime educators and education privacy advocates and experts on my show today to discuss student and teacher privacy. Lainey Hameson is the executive director of Class Size Matters and the co-chair of the Parent Coalition for Student Privacy. The coalition has testified before Congress twice in recent years about the need to strengthen federal laws to protect student privacy. The organization released a parent toolkit for student privacy last year. Laney co-founded the organization after leading the fight against In Bloom, Inc., which is a corporation funded with more than $100 million from the GATE Foundation that was designed to collect personal student data and disclose it to tech vendors without Parental consent. Within about a year, all nine states and districts that had agreed to participate pulled out of in Bloom, and it closed its doors in April of 2014. That year, Laney received an award from parents across America for her work on student privacy. In 2015, Laney was named one of the ten most influential people in EdTech by Tech and Learning Magazine. Marla Kilfoyle has been a public school teacher for 30 years. She's worked in urban, rural, and suburban school districts in Maine, Florida, and New York. She is a national board certified teacher. Marla is also the mother of a student with special needs. Marla is the former Executive director of the Badass Teachers Association, a position she held for the first five years the organization was in existence. Among Marla's accomplishments are co author of an amicus brief filed with the U.S. Supreme Court for Friedrichs versus CTA. She's also co-author of Chapter 17 in the book, Resisting Reform, Reclaiming Public Education Through Grassroots Activism. And Marla was also chosen as the first educator to be the Finkelstein Memorial Lecturer at Adelphi University. Marla was honored by the New York State Assembly in 2012 as a woman of distinction. Marla has published over 50 articles defending public school teachers, and has appeared on both TV and radio advocating for public school educators, children, and communities. Marla and Lainey, thank you so very much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Well, this is such a timely topic and, you know, it's something that a lot of my listeners have asked about um, over the months. And I thought we'd start by just, you know, thinking about the ways in which personal data of teachers and instructors and others working at the schools are being collected. I don't think a lot of times the general public realizes all the different types of personal data that is collected. Can maybe you uh, discuss some of those ways? So in recent years, there's been a huge push by the federal
2: government and by states to collect more and more student and teacher data to put them in what are called a student longitudinal databases. And um, this was pushed by the federal government under the Obama administration as part of the stimulus package. So most states have these longitudinal data systems now that collect personal uh, data on students that include everything from their grades and test scores to their disciplinary uh, records, their number of suspensions, their special needs, health conditions, etc. And more and more, um, this was also linked to teacher data because there was a big push to evaluate teachers by means of their student test scores. At the same time, there has been a huge explosion of the use of educational technology tools in the classroom. And those tools, in many cases, uh, collect personal student data and give them over to the hands of private vendors. So there are assessment tools, there are behavior modification tools, there are um, um, uh, composition instructional tools, there's all sorts of tools that are being used in the classroom every day by kids and uh basically are they're entering very, very personal information into these tools and it's going into private corporate hands. And and Marla can talk a little bit about that as well.
3: Yeah, Marla does. Yeah, what Rebecca back is, yeah mm-hmm. as um laney and I are both in New York, and uh, what ha- what began roughly about five years ago is um, teachers in New York uh, began to get rated on student test scores um, so one of the ways that we have begun to now upload data is of course all the data of our children's test scores and and having teachers rated on test scores which the American Statistical Association has said is you know um, you know voodoo science um, you know, but we've always kind of had to upload personal information about ourselves. In fact, I just filled out last week what are called our BEDS forms, and they use these for a variety of purposes, how many children you have in your class, what types of classes you're teaching, and all those are, things are fine, but there's other kinds of personal data that you have to upload, like, you know, for example, your um, gender, um, your race, you know, things of that nature. Um, so you know, and as Lainey said, you know, I work in a very high tech district. You know, we're moving at the speed of light, and um, you know, it's a it's a scary place to be for an educator because you want to be able to keep up with the curve and and you know the push for new technology and all of the gadgets that help kids learn and help teachers teach, but it's been it's been pretty intense. Oh, gosh, yeah.
1: You know, as you both were describing that, I heard two big issues kind of that hit me. um, And one has to do with when you talked about the centralized database or uh, Mm -hmm. the database you're talking about submitting all of this data into. And then the other is all of the technology that is increasingly being used. And I kind of want to go back to that database. So, um, I still, I, I'm not quite clear on is this like a national database that's pooling everybody's data into one location or is this on a state by state basis or, you so know. So there
3: is. There
2: is a law that was passed a number of years ago which prohibits the federal government from creating a a centralized, comprehensive student database. However, there have been many bills in the past few years to overturn that ban. And currently, um, and, and parents have been pushing very hard for the ban to continue because they don't want the federal government to be able to collect the personal information of every student in a public school and track them through life, which is basically mm-hmm. what the proponents of this kind of data collection want to do. Right now, there are several bills that, that turn the ban starting uh, in college. And the ostensible reason for this is to be able to rate colleges on their graduation rates and the future career success of their students. However, we're still against that because we think there are better ways of doing that sort of college rating. And I don't know of many parents or, or, or college-age kids who want their, their personal information collected by the federal government throughout their entire lives, which is basically what's being proposed. So the Gates Foundation, when they set up in Bloom, really tried to replace what the federal government was um, was prevented from doing, which would be a multi-state database that would collect all this information in one centralized place. And um, parents, when they found out about it, they had not been told by their states or districts and they rose up um in, in, in a lot of anger in all of these places and they basically forced the state and districts to pull out of these systems but what we learned as a result of this fight which I had not known and most parents had not known and in fact some legal experts at school uh, lawyers for school boards etc who contacted me did not know that uh, the federal law called FERPA which we thought had prohibited the release and sharing of personal student information without parent knowledge and consent had been weakened twice over the last eight years uh, by the U.S. Department of Education through regulation to allow for the expanded uh, disclosure of student information in many, many instances by schools. And so when we found that out, after we defeated In Bloom, we decided we really needed to form a national group, which we did, that would fight for more student privacy, because In Bloom, which was truly a, a horrible, horrible invention, was in some ways only the tip of the iceberg, and there were many, many other vendors and corporations and um um, ed- education technology products being used in the classroom that was were basically doing a very similar thing and parents didn't know about it they weren't being told about it and there was n- there were no security protections there are still no security protections in federal law for the collection and disclosure of student data. Um, the law was passed many years ago before the uh, electronic collection of data was really um, um, Happening, and so at that point, student data was basically kept in a file cabinet in the principal's office or or in the, another office. And now, with the with the um, abundant collection of more and more student data on these electronic databases, usually usually stored in a cloud somewhere, the number of breaches has also exploded. So. There have been more than 300 breaches in the last few years of, of student data, and those are just the ones that are publicly reported because just as though there's no security requirements in federal law, there's also no legal requirements that breaches have to be even reported
1: to parents. Oh, that's, yeah. I think a lot of people believe that FERPA, you know, protects everything and requires breach response but like you said it's um, that's not something that is in there that that makes that information available to families if it happens or even... Yeah, there's well. no
2: breach notification and there have been more and more loopholes in FERPA that have been baited over time in order to facilitate the transfer of this student data into private hands to allow for the expansion of educational technology and other online tools. So not only has the, 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 the uh, FERPA not been modernized, in many ways it's been weakened.
1: Uh, well, that's very concerning. And you know, as you were talking about that In Bloom database, that initiative—I mean, mm-hmm. it sounds like it was in place for a while. So I assume that all there was a lot of student data probably gathered while it was in effect. What happened to all of that data? I mean, when so the program, only
2: state that we actually know actually ever shared its data with In Bloom initially. Uh, was New York, mm. and they said that they did upload data, the New York databases, especially in New York City, they admitted to us into the InBloom um, cloud. Actually, it was an Amazon cloud, but then InBloom said that they deleted the data, and then InBloom closed its doors. However, that was never audited or in any way, um, you know, there was no, no no proof or oversight to make sure that that actually happened. But we have to assume that we that it happened because there's no way that we can do anything about it. But they told us that they did delete the data eventually. But I held a town hall meeting before the, um, In Bloom was really finalized, and when the uh, you, the representative from the New York City Department of Education told the parents in the room that that their the kids' data had already been uploaded people really started screaming and yelling and getting very, very upset about it.
1: Oh, I can imagine, especially if there was no way for you to ask to have your your child's data removed from that database.
2: Right. They didn't allow for parents to... Pull out in, in or make it optional in New York. In Colorado, after a huge amount of uh, parent protests, they did allow for parents to opt out of the database. But then they ended up pulling out altogether after their school board elections came and all the people who would, were pro Bloom, in Bloom had lost their the election. So um, it was it was a really dr- it was a really fierce fight, but it was a successful fight in the end. But it was also frustrating to find out how many other uh, companies already had our student data, and how few protections there were for th- for this data um, as it flowed into private hands.
1: Oh my gosh! I can just, only, you know, thinking about the possibilities just really worries me. And I have two children myself, and I'm thinking if somebody took their their data and started sharing it with. Unlimited numbers of unknown third parties who have it now that you don't know about. Yeah, that that's very distressing. And um, mm-hmm. we have a break. We have a break coming up here pretty quickly. But when we come back, I want to talk about some of those other technologies that are being used, and then get into your toolkit that um, both of you participated in creating. So right now, it's time for a quick break to hear from our valued sponsors that I do appreciate so much. I'm speaking today with Lainey Hampson and Marla Kilfoyle about student and teacher privacy. I'm your host, Rebecca Harrell, the Privacy Professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show, as well as show topic suggestions using my email, Harold at RebeccaHerald.com and also through my PrivacyGuidance.com website. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from my sponsors.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold & Associates offers information security products, privacy and compliance tools, education and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. Have you heard about Simbas360.com? The Simbas system includes information security, privacy and compliance management, policies, procedures and forms, third party and vendor management, training and awareness breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Simbus also offers AlienVault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Simbus system. Visit simbus 360com
1: Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows
3: and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be.
1: Listen anywhere.
0: Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Herald RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com. That's RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to
1: Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. I'm speaking today with Lainey Hampson and Marla Kilfoyle about student and teacher privacy. So one of the things that has really been concerning me is the growing use of all of those different types of apps that are being created for schools to use. I mean, my sons are now 19 and 21, so they're they're in college, but still when they were going through in middle school and high school, they started giving alerts through apps and, and teachers communicating with the kids through apps. So there's all these different apps. I mean, what can you tell me about about the apps that are being used now and the privacy issues and how much testing even is done for them before the schools even start using those apps?
3: Well, what, what we have, at least here in New York, Rebecca, and what we learned when we did the toolkit, which we'll talk about later, is there are Teachers are exposed and kind of sold, not in a you know money sense. You know, all of these apps, hundreds and hundreds of them. I mean, there's new ones that come out every day, and districts are sharing all these new apps with teachers that'll grade essays for you and do all mm-hmm. kinds of you know bell and whistles. And as educators, the biggest thing we always look for is to get more time back, right? And so mm-hmm. there, it's very enticing to look into these things and use them. Um, and, you know, the thing that I learned, I learned a lot from Laney and Rebecca, uh, uh, Rachel, who were uh, the very big privacy people that we worked with. One of the things that I learned about were the click wrap agreements, which I'm sure Laney will mm. talk about. But one of the really scary things, for example, about two years ago, I think, I'm losing track of my time because I've been through so many tech, you know, apps, Um I had, you know, all of my classes were on a uh, system called Edmodo, which I used to deliver instruction, to collect assignments, grade assignments, hand them back, and as I'm sure everybody knew, Edmodo had a really huge problem. Um, and we all had to change our passwords and our usernames. And uh, the system was down. It was very uh, invasive, and it was very disruptive to the school day um, for about a week. So we had to figure out what we were going to use. Had their, so seventy-seven it was hard. million. It was hard. It was hard. Had their data breached
2: in an yeah. Edmodo hack? Seventy-seven yeah. million, and there was a lot of personal information in that hack.
1: So it was like names and addresses and grades and other things mm-hmm. or. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. And well, how widely is that used, especially for a lot of my listeners don't have a, an education, you know, they aren't in the education industry, but I know that they're concerned about it. Are, is this an app that was used primarily um, in New York or in throughout the U.S. or throughout the world? I I know it was used
2: throughout the U.S. Um, I don't know about the world. But there were at least 50 million usernames and at least 29 million emails exposed, the largest breach of children's data ever. Wow. And um, it it was one of these things that it was a free app, right, Marla? Mm -hmm. So all these um, teachers had downloaded it without really much thought.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: when the breach happened, um, it was you know it was astonishing how widespread it was used, and it was apparently not secured very well at all. And so, mm-hmm. um, one of the things that the the the, the 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 app is still being used now. It's actually being been bought up uh, by a Chinese investors, and it's. Advertising on the platform that the kids use, and it was recently revealed that it's advertising both beer and electronic cigarettes to children. Oh my so gosh! So this is how some of these free, free, premium—they called premium—tools that teachers are downloading and using in classrooms throughout America actually, they're not free. They're trying to make money at the same time off of the children's personal data. And so one of the things that we recommend teachers not do is use these supposedly free apps and, and that Marla was describing that have these click wrap agreements where you just click on a button and you say, I agree, um, without the district very carefully analyzing the terms of service and the privacy policies to make sure that the data is being secured and used appropriately. And even then they're often, these apps are often unsafe because their terms of service and privacy policies, if you can understand them at all, are not all that honest. So they are often sharing the data with, you know, 15 other companies who are supposedly bound by the same restrictions as the original company. But nobody is overseeing it. Nobody is enforcing it. Nobody is auditing it. And so what happens is the student data gets handed off from one company to another, to another, and and nobody really knows what happens to it in the end. And there are these uh, data broking, broker companies that now sell student data for a few cents each, And nobody knows where they get the data in the first place, but they probably get it through a lot lot of these classroom
1: apps. Wow. Well, when you're talking about downloading these apps and so on, I mean, um, I'm located here in Des Moines, Iowa, and I've worked with a few um, school districts just because, you know, it helps that I have some of that background. But when I've worked with them, one of the things that I've – I've done is help them to create like policies and procedures to uh, you know indicate which apps are acceptable what are the steps you have to go through before you use them but in your experience do you see that maybe in a lot of school districts um, the apps are pretty much just downloaded if if somebody sees one they think might be good or is advertised as being a an education app, then it's pretty much whoever wants to use them goes ahead and downloads them and uses them.
3: Yeah, that's what that we what we found. What we found um, when we surveyed teachers for the toolkit, um, and you know, we can you know, we'll talk about that later. But I think one of the things that's important is that um, a large majority of schools and districts require teacher to use online instruction and assessment programs. In fact, sixty two percent of the teachers that we surveyed said that. Um, you know, these are requirements now for teachers to use and then specifically for teachers to use because they're being rated on it for their jobs. Um, you know, when I get observed, for example, one of the parts of my observation rubric is the use of technology. Uh, mm-hmm. so, you know, teachers are feeling very rushed. Um, you know, they're feeling very pressured to use, you know, the latest gadget, uh, and it's, it, it's. Very concerning, you know, um, and that's a lot of the things that we found out when we started to do these things. Forty-eight, nearly half of the teachers that we surveyed said their schools or districts require the use of apps with click-wrap agreements. So, you know... Teachers don't have time to read all of that stuff, and like Leany said, it's, it's, it's very concerning. Sixty-nine percent of the teachers said they didn't get enough training in how to protect student privacy. So it's kind of, for us, it's almost like the Wild West. Um, but, you know, we're hoping the toolkit helps people out. It's just it's a very, very intense time, especially for technology and, and for teachers. So well, one of the that. other
2: findings of the survey is that 68% of the teachers said that they had no idea if the vendors of the apps that they used in the classroom sell the data or use it for marketing purposes. So it's the 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 the, the overall perception out there is that there's there are a lot of apps being used every day in the classroom with very little vetting, with very little oversight, and with, with, with no specific security protections associated and, and um, protecting it from breaches. Recently, in the last couple months, the FBI actually came out with a public service announcement that we should probably talk about as well, um, mm-hmm. warning parents about the use of ed tech in the classroom and about the widespread breaches that have occurred in recent years, and telling them that they need to ask more questions about what apps their kids are being are using, and what the what the security protections are. There was uh, last year there were a lot of um, it was ransomware. So there was a group mm-hmm. called Dark Overlord that was hacking into school systems databases throughout the country. And threatening them that unless they gave them millions of dollars that they would expose the data to the to the public
1: yes, yes, that, that actually hit um here, although the the dark overlord here in central Iowa they found out that they were just saying that they were trying to cause mm-hmm. fear and Yeah, and it did. It caused, you know, a bunch of problems. But, you know, what was that stat that you said earlier about what percentage of teachers even get security and privacy training to use, you know, to know about uh, the different security and privacy risks? Was it only 48% or? So 69%.
2: Sixty-nine percent said they did not get enough training in how to protect ah. student privacy. Only thirty-one percent said they thought they had enough training, and you can never be sure that that thirty-one percent is right, because we also um, asked um, um, administrators, and most of the administrators said they they hadn't had the training either, and and weren't giving the training to their teachers. So, and I think
3: there's, too, there's, one of the, one of the big. Um stats that we had as well in terms of uh no training in data security is eighty four percent of the people that answer right. or teachers that answered our survey said they'd never had training to prevent phishing, ransomware, or other cyber attacks eighty four percent
1: oh my gosh. Teachers. Yeah. Of teachers. And then when you think about it, you know, this I've always believed, you know, for years um, that this needs to be taught to the students in school. So if you aren't teaching the the teachers about it, how can then the students learn about it (laughs) when the teachers haven't been taught about it either? So very concerning. And that's why we made the (laughs) toolkit. Well, yeah, let's get into that toolkit uh, because, you know, I, I saw that and I was so intrigued about it. So how did the idea of creating a toolkit for teacher and student privacy come about? I mean, was there a significant event or was it a culmination of just a snowball of problems or, or what, what caused that to, to be created?
2: Well, about a year and a half ago, um, Our Parent Coalition for Student Privacy put out a parent toolkit for student privacy that we developed with the uh, Campaign for a Commercial-Free Childhood. And that was very popular and well-received. And so we thought that a teacher toolkit might even be more useful because in certain ways teachers are the guardians of the classroom. They're the ones that are, are often making the decisions or at least carrying out the decisions of other school staff um, that are putting student data at risk. Teachers are also confronted with their own data increasingly being collected and being misused, either through breaches, which have have happened repeatedly in recent years with teachers' salaries and social security numbers being released, but also um, with the recent uh, West Virginia strike, the the wildcat strikes that happened in West Virginia, one mm-hmm. of the prime motivating forces behind that that strike was that the state was asking teachers to upload all sorts of personal health data to mm-hmm. the web to their a website, as well as. Um, um, carry a, a device on their wrist that would count the number of steps they took and how much physical exercise they did every week in order to help determine what premiums they would have to pay for their health insurance and and teachers found this extraordinarily intrusive they got very very angry and 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 they and they had um you know they they decided to strike over this as well as other things to do with working conditions and salary but this was one of the prime reasons that really was like the straw that broke this camel camel's back as far as teachers were concerned. So as this data collection is being expanded in all sorts of ways and teachers themselves are being surveilled and having their um, you know uh, classroom behavior and their work behavior and even their private lives monitored more and more, um, we believe that it was important for teachers to have the tools that they needed in order not just to uh, try to more carefully figure out which um, classroom practices put their data at risk, but also how to advocate for more privacy and security at the school and district level. And that's one of the Mm -hmm. things that I think is most important in this toolkit is it, 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 teaches teachers about how to read a privacy policy to some extent and how to know if an app is doing the right sort of things and also which common classroom practices violate FERPA and federal law, which we can also talk about if you like. But Mm -hmm. even more, we believe that, that, you know, training is needed and a lot more education is needed at schools. and, and, And we provided some tips to teachers about how
1: to advocate to make sure that happens. Well, that sounds wonderful, and and I just want to revisit. You said that strike for wearing uh, that that was uh, spawned through requiring fitness devices to be worn. That was in what state? West Virginia. West Virginia. Okay, I'm gonna look at that up after yeah. the show. I want yeah. to find and out more was, about that.
2: There, yeah, and there was a big there was a big strike in West Virginia, and they won on that issue. Um, the the state said, okay, you don't have to wear these devices, and we will not track your steps and ask you to upload all sorts of highly personal health data into
1: the this, this state database. And so your toolkit, does it include information to help teachers when they're confronted with these types of requests or new rules? Does it help guide them then uh, how to react if they feel that it's
3: privacy intrusive? Yeah, I think I think the tool it covers a, a really broad spectrum of issues. It covers how to make sure that they're protecting first and foremost student data. You know, being responsible. Um, you know, I think one of the more powerful things that we looked at, like we were had as teachers, you know, is data privacy being discussed at faculty meetings. You know, are you talking about protecting your data and children's data? Uh, I think one of the other powerful things, just from a practitioner standpoint, is that are you using apps that have been vetted by your district? And if your district doesn't have a vetting process, you need to advocate for that to making sure that the things that you're introducing in your classroom are safe. They're not taking children's data and doing things with it that they're not supposed to be doing. Um, and I th- I have to agree with Lainey. One of the more powerful things that we hope will come out of this toolkit is that we can teach teachers how to advocate for both protecting student data and making sure there's mechanisms in place so that the things that we're using in the classroom don't, steal children's data, but also ways in which teachers can advocate for themselves. One of the things that also came forward is after a a Supreme Court ruling this past year in the Janus decision, all of a sudden teachers were getting emails on their school, emails from um, companies and organizations that were trying to get them to leave their union. Oh. And in fact, I got one of them. So these are the things that are happening. You know, it's our school email. It's you know a, a public email. Anybody could probably find it. But the fact is, is it's still invasive. Um, and well, they you know, also, so also think, were asking
2: but, teachers to enter their information on this online form to help them yeah, draft the, the letters yeah, yeah. to pull out of the union. But at the same time, these conservative organizations were collecting more data from teachers as they asked them to fill in these online forms.
1: Yep. what kind of additional information were they asking for? I mean, if you, you maybe that. Yeah, I think it was like the
2: name our... of your school, your address, yep. your telephone number, stuff like that. Oh. It sort of created so... political databases
1: for these groups. Wow. Well, you know, before I want to let our listeners, I'm sure they've heard a lot, you know, about the toolkit uh, so far. Where does it cost educators to get this toolkit? Where can they get the toolkit from?
2: So it's completely free, and we encourage people to download it. Um, It's been downloaded more than two thousand times already in the last two weeks.
3: Wow! Um, It's called
2: the yeah, and we you can either get it on. Uh, our website, which is called studentprivacymatters.org, or the Badass Teachers website, and you want to give that address, Marla? Yes, badassteacher.org. And they can download it. You can Google it. It's it's called the Educator Toolkit for Teacher and Student Privacy, a Practical Guide for Protecting Personal Data. And hopefully you might be able to put the link on on the radio website as well.
1: I definitely will. That'll be good information to know. And when people download it, I've got to ask this: <laughs> What kind of infor- yeah. personal information are you asking them for, or are are can they just download it at free will without uh, entering anything? Yeah, yeah.
2: We don't ask for any personal information whatsoever. I've seen other websites that do that that make you enter in their your name and email to download something and and where you work. This is, there's complete anonymity as far as we're concerned. You download it, and there's no questions asked.
1: That's pretty awesome. So, so what are some of the, the primary components? I mean, we've kind of talked a little bit uh, about some of the things that's in there, but we've, we've got about uh, three minutes left here. I want to make sure you get out the key points about that toolkit before we get to the end.
2: Well, I think one of the most useful things that we haven't discussed is certain common classroom practices that actually violate Mm -hmm. um, federal privacy law. And one of them that we talk about is um, data walls, which are very, very common in schools across the country where teachers post their students' names or ID numbers along with grades or test scores on tests. And if that information is posted on a, on a classroom or a hallway wall where um, more than just school staff can see it, that violates FERPA and should never happen. Even though it is very, very widespread, it is against the law. One other thing that happens all the time in schools that we get questions about all the time is very personal student uh, surveys. Schools are giving out surveys right and left that ask all sorts of personal questions, including their relationship with their parents, their religion, their family income, their, oh. um, um, their, uh, all sorts of other things related to their, their at- political attitudes or sexual behavior and attitudes, or their drug use or their alcohol use. And it's illegal to give those kinds of surveys in school that that relate to those kinds of personal questions without letting parents know beforehand what the survey questions are and allowing parents to opt out. And yet this happens all the time in schools every single day.
1: Well, and I might mention, too, that FERPA applies to government-funded schools, right? So um, yeah, any school you- any school that gets uh,
2: Title I funds, basically government funds. Um, so it doesn't apply to a lot of private schools, but even some private schools and certainly charter schools do get Title I funds as well. So um, it, it's most schools across the country, actually. And then there's something else that the College Board that we're also very concerned about right now, which is mm-hmm. the federal. the College Board sells student data and also collect student data in um, surveys before your child takes the test, including in some of the sensitive areas that I mentioned. And so if your child, you should know that. You should know the federal government has now alerted College Board that they're potentially in violation of several different federal student privacy laws. And if your child is taking the College Board, um, let them know that they should not answer any personal questions Except the ones that are absolutely required, which is basically their name, um, their student ID number and what's what school they attend and none of the other questions that they're asking
1: and for our listeners the the college board is not a government entity right it is uh, a testing. Um, or a testing company,
2: but more and more schools are assigning kids to take the college board, PSATs and SATs in school? And so that's why the federal privacy law is, um, is, it, is, is required to obey federal privacy restrictions, mm-hmm. because the school itself is, has a contract with the college board and is administering these tests as part of the school day.
1: Right. Well, believe it or not, we're here at the end of the show. Um, If each of you have just in one minute can say uh, a final thought to our listeners, uh, um, I'd appreciate it.
3: Well, I'll, I'll go first, Laney. I think for teachers, I, I really do hope that you will, uh, or any educator around the world, that w- I hope that you will download this. You will specifically look at our tips for using technology in the classroom. It's very easy to understand, and I hope that uh, they'll take advantage of it. Yeah, right. and
2: I think I... that and there's one more thought that I'd like to communicate, which we also deal with in a peripheral manner in the toolkit, which is, that a lot of these ed tech tools have never been vetted for any kind of educational effectiveness, and mm-hmm. there are no, there are very few independent studies that show that um, kids spending more and more time on computers in schools, either do, um, del- you know, getting their instruction or assessment or otherwise, have an educational value, and more right. and more. Students themselves are saying that uh, their schools are—they're oh, they, spending too much time um, in front of a screen. There are all and, sorts of un, um, worrisome potential health effects right. of that, and emotional well, effects of that. And I would—I would caution teachers and parents and, and any kind of um, 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 person, people who are experiencing this, to really okay. ask questions about. Whether there's an independent study, uh, a peer-reviewed study, or anything that shows that um, the educational application or product being used in the classroom actually
1: works to help kids learn.
2: And if not, it just may not even be worth the risk.
1: Very good. Very good closing thoughts. Thank you so much for being my guest today. I sure appreciate it. And we've learned so much. Today, I've been speaking mm-hmm. with Lainey Hamson and Marla Kilfoyle about student and teacher privacy. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. Please tune in to my show each week. And you can see all my past shows on my voiceamerica.com business website. Until next week, have a great week and stay privacy aware.
0: Thank you for tuning in this week. Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe.